Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. Good morning. Yes, and here I'm not alone. Today we've got Kim in the studio. Hello, great to see you back. <laughs> yes, it's lovely to be back. Yes, that's right. Oh, and today we've got lots of things to talk about, and we've even got a live guest. Goodness me, not dead, not on the phone, but live. Uh, Don Sutherland's actually turning up today. He's here for the long weekend, and he's uh, he's going to come and talk to us about the uh, the wages uh, uh, and penalty rates uh, debacle. Uh, actually, the national wage case. Yeah, that that was uh, heard and uh, last week. So um, we should be able to get some understanding of that. But uh, there was an uh, amazing uh, thing happened over in England. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The election. <laughs> Did you think it, the it was an amazing um, turnaround for Labor, or was that always on the cards? Yeah, I think people were inspired by something to fight for. Perhaps the manifesto. Yeah, well, also the uh, uh, complete uh, attack on uh, the national health system and uh, a whole range of other things that are going on. In fact, it surprises me that the Conservatives get away with it for so long. Yeah, well, I think as well the media drummed up support for May that didn't actually exist. Oh, right. I think that was part of it. Well, someone was saying that uh, there was, I think it was in the the Telegraph, there was uh, all week uh, leading up to the election, there was endless uh, anti-Corbyn, rhetoric running through pages and pages and pages of it. <laughs> well, it's a good thing people don't listen to the media, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> isn't it incredible? Yeah. Anyway, hopefully we'll get someone to talk about this because I was listening to all the stuff about it and uh, about uh, the um, the uh, Conservatives having gone into the election with a majority and coming out of it with a minority and having to expected to uh, uh, make a deal with 10 um, a Northern Ireland unionists to, uh, in order to maintain the government. And we're not talking about unionists as in working unionists. We're talking uh, like about... Orange men. Orange men. <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting in itself. Uh, and, uh, but all of them were talking about that. And, you know, it's the end of civilization as we know it. 
as opposed to what it means from the working people's mm. point of view and from Labor's point of view. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty outrageous from their perspective, isn't it? They can't get the electorate to behave anymore and vote for who they tell them to vote for. <laughs> and not only that, those young people, they actually oh, they're took the their, worst. Yeah, <laughs> they took their right to vote. Seriously, they actually voted. <laughs> uh, also, the other thing was that uh, uh, the um, UKIP just bit the dust, completely bit the dust, well, disintegrated. I th- yeah, I know. It was interesting because they they weren't actually meant to win Brexit. That wasn't their, <laughs> that wasn't their goal. Oh, uh, yeah, Boris Johnson as well was oh, yeah, he wants- shocked and horrified by actually winning. <laughs> that wasn't the point, was it? And then the, the Tories, they went so far to the right that they completely squeezed out the space for UKIP. Incredible. <laughs> that's right, because that's what they said. They said <laughs> two-thirds of that vote went to the Conservatives and yeah. a third of it went to the to Labor, according to whatever, whoever and whatever. <laughs> anyway, that was just uh, the beginning of the program that we're not really going to talk about what's going on in, in England. No, we're not really talking about it. We're, just... <laughs> we're not really talking about it. Uh, we're, uh, we're actually going to go to Spain. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was talking to Dick Nickel, who is the uh, Green Left uh, a European uh, commentator, and he's, uh, his big brief is to follow the machinations of what goes on in Spanish politics, and they are machinations. Ooh. Yes. There's been this uh, high drama going on there where um, they had two uh, general elections that were inconclusive, and uh, in order to uh, to avert the idea of having a third general election, there was this abominable notion that uh, the um, uh, PP, which is the kernel of the uh, fascist uh, groupings from Franco, that that co- you know became this party. This conserv- they call them conservatives. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they they wear suits, I guess, conservatives. Uh, having, <laughs> having them be again, uh, continue a minority government with the support of the uh, or the lack of intervention from the centralist socialist party, which was the traditional uh, opposition, right, to this PP party. I love it, PP. It's like, you know, do, do you do number ones or do you do number twos? PP. Anyway, by the by. Um, the, uh, now, they had this stoush because, of course, Pom- Pomodorus, the big uh, 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 rising, uprising of people, public support for a leftist agenda, a uh, socialist agenda, uh, was, um, has really uh, changed the dynamic in Spain. And... Uh, so um, the head of the centralist socialist group, Sanchez, uh, said that being a, a, a good politician, he, he said, oh, you know, we can't ignore these people and their desires. While the establishment within the wealth, you know, uh, based establishment in the socialist conservatives, uh, socialist uh, centralists, have sort of said, uh, well, we, you know, we're going to, our tactic is to, uh, uh, you know, just ignore them and continue on our way so that we can still continue to, I presume, feather their nests or feel comfortable with the ongoing situation. And so what did they do? They 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 basically kicked him out. Hmm. 
And what did he do? Because he's a politician, he said, well, I'm going to uh, uh, resign and then I'm going to uh, go again for re-election to the uh, head of the party. And that's where we talked to Dick Nicol to find out what's going on in Spain. Um, all right. So, do you want to start with uh, the? Uh, do you want to give the uh, listeners some background to the high drama that's been going on in the Socialist Party? Uh, when the last election was held, the last general election was held back in June last year. It was an inconclusive result, and the pressure was on the Socialist Party, which was had come in with a very poor result, um, but would determine which way if there was going to be a new government, whether there's going to be a conservative government or, or whether they were going to try and do a, some sort of left or progressive government with Podemos, the Socialist Party under Sanchez, its general secretary, had gone to the electorate saying they would never vote to endorse a popular party, a people's party, a conservative government being formed. The establishment of the party were under terrific pressure from you know, the economic and um, political powers that be in Spain to allow a, conserv- a minority conservative government to form. They were also afraid if they went to a third election, because this had been the second election, if they went to a third general election, they would lose uh, even more support than they had done to date. The, you've got these three things going on, isn't it? Three different political forces. One is this conservative party, the PP, which is actually... Uh, the remnants of uh, Franco's fascists, really. Uh, and then you've got the Socialist Party, but which won't actually endorse this uh, mass uprising of especially young people with left views. Podemos took five million votes from the Socialist Party. That's what happened by Podemos and its allies over two elections. Uh, and basically, it is basically, but not exclusively, a generational thing. Young people vote Podemos... Older people vote, uh, working, working class people vote for the PSOE, the Socialist Party. There's been a, an ongoing battle as to which of these two parties is going to be the hegemonic party, the leading party on the left. And that, in fact, is even more important in Spanish politics as a whole as to who is then who is going to actually govern. Because if Podemos becomes the hegemonic force on the left, the leading force on the left, then you'll get a radical shift in Spanish politics as a whole, which and all the establishment forces uh, are opposed to that. It's the last thing they want to happen. So the Socialist Party was under pressure, and Sanchez in particular was under pressure, to let a PP government form. But he understood that if that happened, that would be the death of the Socialist Party because there's, I mean, there's quite a, the Socialist Party is quite conservative on, quite, on a whole number of issues, but because of the whole background of the Civil War, uh, the differences between the people who fought on Franco's side and the people who opposed Franco, the, socialist, the idea that the Socialist Party would actually support, allow a PP government to come into power, which would be the first time it ever happened, uh, it was just anathema. Yeah, to the disgusting. Mass, mass of the membership. It just it, it's a bit hard to describe because it's a very Spanish thing. Uh, it's it, it's just like having your enemy come into the into the house. That's that's basically what people felt. And Sanchez understood that. Sanchez is not a, you know he's not a Jeremy Corbyn or a Bernie um, Sanders. Sanders. 
but he understood that it would be the death of the Socialist Party if it did that, and it would effectively hand the leadership of the left to Port Amos. And so what happened was that the powers that be in the Socialist Party, the, the regional leaders, the, what they call the barons, plus previous prime ministers uh, and other various heavies, organised a coup against Sanchez back in uh, October last year. October the 1st last year, and what they did was they got the numbers on the Federal Political Committee, which is the leadership body uh, between Congresses. They got the numbers and uh, voted that they would abstain and allow a PP government to form. So Sanchez then resigned as National Secretary. Then they forced him to leave Parliament because they made it obligatory for the, all members of Parliament to allow to, to abstain and hence allow the PP government to form. Despite that, 15 uh, Pessoa members of parliament voted against. They actually disobeyed party discipline. So this created a situation where there's an absolute civil war inside the uh, inside the Pessoa. And so he decided that he was going to stand again for the leadership of the party. Well, what happened was then was that the, the barons and the powers that be set up a interim management committee, which was their creature, you know, is basically beholden to them. Uh, and they tr- decided they were going to drag out the having of a new Congress and the election of a new General Secretary as long as possible in order to de- demoralise the Sanchez forces. Despite all the manoeuvres, and I won't go into all the detail of this, despite the fact that they, they sort of put up a third candidate to kind of split the, oh, yeah, right. the, the Sanchez vote, all the usual tricks that yeah, we all right. know, uh, despite this... Uh, the Sanchez campaign had enough rank-and-file support, enough organisation, it was very well organised, that it galvanised all all this anger. So all this anger went into supporting the Sanchez campaign. It was very clear very early on uh, from the size of the crowds that were going to his meetings. You know, there were overflow crowds. The halls were always too small. The atmosphere was very, very militant. Um, and they all ended with singing of the International. Nobody had been singing the International mm. in the Pessoa uh, for 15 or so years. Mm. Um, and that, but it also they also had a, a program, a draft program, which they had, which they put out to the membership to amend. And so as it was amended and as it, as it has now evolved, it is now quite a left program, though it's, there are many aspects of it that aren't as left and aren't as progressive as Podemos. But it's certainly much more left than either the Pessoa machine uh, or the um, you know the powers that be economic and, and political powers that be institutional powers that be in Spain uh, would want the Pessoa to be uh, be supporting. So when they had this election, he actually won resoundingly, didn't he? He got fifty point three percent of the vote. There was no question about it. Uh, Susana Diaz, who was the premier of Andalusia, who was the apparatus candidate. Uh, he got just over 39%. Um, so there was no question that he won, also because the participation was massive. Just under 80% of all members voted. Yeah, yeah, that is extraordinary. Now, what does that mean? I mean, obviously, the people's wish is a particular membership is of, of a particular way. How is it going to now be expressed, practically speaking? Well, that's that's a very good question. That's 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 the question of questions. The people supporting Sanchez is sort of unstable amalgam of all sorts of people. It's bu- out bureaucrats who wanted to get back in 
you know, people looking for, get, to get back into the machine, get a job, knock out their, their, their bureaucratic opponents. But there's a big progressive and left component to this. Uh, and Sanchez is, has got to handle this range of this unstable range of forces uh, and it's not at all clear how this is going to play out because Sanchez won this campaign because of organization from from below yes. um, and one aspect of it was that the traditional left in the Pasoe which has always had a left it's got a formal left tendency called the socialist left uh, they didn't stand their candidate this time, and they supported Sanchez. You know, and they also organised a lot of people to yes. come out. Yes. So that you you now you're not just talking about a oh well now he can just go on being what he has always been, which is you know at centrist at best politician. You know, Sanchez is a very ambitious person. He is whatever the pressures are. Uh, He's a politician. That, well, he's very much a politician in that sense. You know. So we will see. You get a sense of it. Uh, immediately because Podemos has moved a motion of censure in the corrupt PP government, the most corrupt government in Europe, in the Spanish parliament. And the PSOE's got to, got to work out what it's going to do with this. PSOE's got a sort of double game going here. They, Sanchez says, oh, I understand and I feel close to the people who are voting for Podemos. So he's changed the line on of the tone towards Podemos. But this is a poisonous thing because what he's trying to do is get back all those voters who went to mm, Podemos, mm, yes. who, des- who deserted to Podemos because they identified the Pessoa as just part of the establishment. On the one hand, he's trying to say, no, no, this isn't the old Pessoa. We've thrown out the barons. We've thrown out the old apparatus. This is new. On the other hand, he can't just support Podemos because then that's saying, uh, well, why don't you get together? Why isn't there a unification of the left, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So the, they have a double line. We we feel close to the members of the people who voted for Podemos, but everybody knows, in inverted commas, that Podemos cannot form government. We are the serious party of uh, government. Yes, right. And so, uh, they're the party of indignation and protest, etc., yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So we'll wait and right. see, really. Yes. So that that, but that's a that's a funny, it's a difficult double message to put across because. So they abstain on this uh, censure motion which Podemos is going to put up, which means that the, the Rajoy government will continue in office. Mm. So you've just helped the Rajoy government continue in office when your whole election campaign to restore to come as general secretary again was based on we should never have allowed this party to have gone into office. So, so, they, so they immediately lose brownie points, if you like. They lose credibility with that. Um, they lose credibility on the uh, question of ca- the right of the Catalans to self-determination because we've got the, the big clash here is over the unilateral referendum, which is going to be declared formally tomorrow by the Catalan government, uh, which will be all over the media. You'll hear about it in Australia even. you know, yes. this, is, this is a clash. This is like... Scotland saying, we don't care what you're going to say in, in London, we're going to have a referendum anyway. Yep. You know, so that's, why, that's what's going on. And the PSOE has come out against that because they're Spanish centralist, just like the PP. So it could – this victory of, of Sanchez on the basis of rank and file ang- uh, anger, where is it going to go? You, know, you asked just the, 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 the pertinent question. And it's not clear. It's, it's very touch and go what's going to happen.
Yeah, we're listening. To, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're listening to Dick Nickel, who uh, is based in Barcelona, and he's talking about what's going on in Spain. But I, the thing I found fascinating, before we go back to the last part of that interview, what I found fascinating, Kim, about what uh, Dick was saying about this argy-bargy that's going on in Spain, is that this political uh, tussle between... Uh, powers that be and the forces of the people, the grassroots that really engage to try and um, force what seems to be an immovable object that is major <laughs> power into actually responding to the needs of the the majority. You know, it's what's going on in England. That's why I started with it. And that's what's going on here. And it's it's a time of volatility. But how how do you make these people, even when the everyone's engaged, do what needs to be done? Mm. It's really tough. I think that that's part of what is missing and what is needed is that you need an organisation in the working class that can make them do what you want, even if you're asking for popular demands that are not... Uh, overtly, you know, the agenda of the working class, which usually line up with the agenda of the working class. That's what you need to actually bring them to heel. Yeah, you have to be cunning. You've got to work out the political uh, manoeuvring that will make it happen. And the pressure points. The pressure points. (laughs) That's exactly right. Because uh, what uh, Dick now goes on to talk about is Catalonia. Mm. Yes, because that's another sidewinding snake in the picture we're in a very critical period uh, not just for spain but for europe it's critical because um, the pp government is a minority government it just got its budget through by getting together a sort of very ramshackle coalition of minor parties and promising lots of money to these uh, to the people that these minor parties represent and it's fragile because it's just one corruption scandal after another such like you know watergate plus but this is spain and because they're our people you know and it's the choices between our people or the reds but it's falling in the opinion polls it's fallen five percentage points in the last six weeks i think Uh, but the chances of overthrowing it depend critically on unity of an alternative which is this? It's, the fact that there's not an alternative is there is dramatised by the fact that this censure motion yep. of Podemos will not win uh. because the Pesari will abstain on it. So, at the same time, you've got the 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 Catalan struggle, and tomorrow they're going to announce the date of the referendum and the actual referendum question, and then we're going to see what. The, the government is prepared to do, the central Spanish government is prepared to do, because the central Spanish government has said, we will not allow this to take place. Ah, oh, yes, it well, has. What are they going to do? What are they going to do to stop it? How are they going to stop it? Send in the troops? What are they going to do? Take over the police force? Uh, suspend the government in Catalonia? How are they going to suspend the government in Catalonia? How far are they prepared to go? So we've had six years of million-plus demonstrations every uh, September the 11th, which is the Catalan National Day. The Catalan government is not going to back down on this because it was elected on the basis of we're going to have a referendum about independence. Spanish centralism, because it's not just the government, Spanish centralism 
unionism mm. would give itself the best chance of winning a referendum in Catalonia if it granted a referendum. Now what you've got is the, the whole struggle is about the right to have a referendum. So in order to have a referendum, the government here, the Catalan government, uh, all effectively has to declare independence. It's, it effectively has to disobey, violate uh, all Spanish le legislation uh, and the Spanish legislation governing these things in order to carry out, to have its democratic uh, way forward. And also to save face and all this sort of stuff. Uh, what's it like to live on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, there's this high drama that's going on a, on a political level. Does it translate into ordinary life? That distinction between ordinary life and, and politics isn't the same here as it is in, say, Australia. Right. That okay. is to say, you go into a bar here and you're two seconds in a bar and you just listen and what is everybody's talking about? Everybody's <laughs> talking about politics. They're talking about politics. They're even talking more about politics than they're talking about the football, which is the soccer, which is telling you something. That's phenomenal. Uh, yeah. So. Well, when I say ordinary life, what about food, food on the table, getting jobs... You know, that's oh, yeah, that, well, that ordinary, the economy ticks on. Yeah, right. And okay. The economy ticks on and it's actually, you know, there's some, some sort of upturn here that all the fruits of the upturn go to those who've already got a lot of money anyway. Yeah, right. So the, the crisis is over for those who are never really in crisis and it's still there for those who are. Oh, right. Um, and that's a big, that's a fact in a lot of people's attitude towards the independence struggle here because a lot of people will say, especially people who have migrated from the rest of Spain to Catalonia, what's all this stuff about independence? This isn't important. Yeah. The important thing is jobs, corruption, bread on the table, future for the children, etc., etc., education, etc., etc. But these, because what is happening in Catalonia, because the the... Uh, you know, the, the way the Spanish state has treated Catalonia, both with regard to important things like infrastructure, taxation, there's a whole series of economic complaints, of discrim economic discrimination. Uh, the, the, these two concerns, like, you know, democratic rights and the economic situation, they don't sit in water different watertight compartments. Yeah, right. You know, okay. they, they influence each other. Yeah. Um, and, and even down so you to see it. He, you see it here in the. Sorry, I'm just going to say this. You see it here. Podemos in Catalonia has to work out what what's its position if there's a unilateral referendum, which there will be. Mm. Uh, the position of Podemos, which is an all Spanish organisation, has been that they are in favour of a negotiated referendum. Yeah, fair with enough. With the Spanish state. And they are in favour of, as anybody would be if it were possible, and they are in favour of recognition of Spain as a plurinational state. Yep. And they are in favour of the recognition of the right of self-determination of the component nations in the Spanish state. So yep. that's all good. But here we have a problem. That is to say, that's all nice on paper. But once, when you've got a PP government in Madrid which says, what do you mean, There's no, not only is Spain not plurinational... Uh, and, the, and the PSOE will start to say that it's plurinational. Not only that, but there's not going to be any uh, referenda by any of these particular nations that make up the Spanish state. So what do you then do? You know, there's, and then you've got a, a national government here, the Catalan government, which says, well, we're going to exercise our right to decide our right to self-determination anyway. 
So this creates a problem for an all, the all-Spanish left. Uh, and you see it, Podemos has been doing meetings here. We've been had meetings here in, and there are basically Podemos is split three ways oh. here. And it's the three ways reflect – it's not that they haven't done their homework or anything. It just reflects the three different attitudes. You have people who say we do not – we should not participate in a unilateral referendum. We should not even go and vote. It's, you know, it's illegal or it's irrelevant. Um, people who say, well, we can't just stand around doing nothing when you have a, a t- brutal attack by the PP, uh, central Spanish government on Catalonia. So we have to participate, but we'll participate in this as an expression of social protest uh, and of political self-affirmation, but it, we, can't re- re- we can't recognize this as a proper referendum, a proper referendum with binding consequences, which is the sort of majority position. And then you have a minority which says, well, look, what's the alternative? You can't, this, the, the Spanish state is a complete roadblock. There's a complete roadblock there. Uh, what do we do? Just hang around and wait until they, we ch- everything's changed at the level of the Spanish state. And how long is that going to take? Um, and so we, this is the best we can do. Uh, let's make sure this referendum is done as properly as possible and let's accept the results. Uh, and that, that's a three-way split. That last position would be the smallest in Podemos, I think, and probably in the rest of the uh, Catalan left that is connected with the, an all-Spanish left. But it is still a strong, still a strong current. And is there a cons- so, yeah, the- is there a conservative Catalan position that says we're Catalan and get stuffed you? Oh yeah, there's, yeah. there's well, not this. It's not like the Lager Nord. There, but there's certainly a right wing uh, and even racist Catalan nationalism. That's for sure. Always oh, has okay. been, yeah. uh, which takes the form of. Um, Catalonia being the, you know, one of the, the industrial, along with the Basque country, being the sort of industrial centres in the Spanish state. And this all goes back to the history of the Spanish state. You know, the, 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 the capitalist, the powerful capitalist classes were not, there's no such thing as a Spanish capitalist class at the beginning. It, you had the Catalan capitalist class, you had the, the Basque capitalist class. Catalan big banks, Basque big banks. Uh, now, there's, now you can say that they've all fused together, and there's a, such a thing as the you know Spanish bourgeoisie with big Spanish companies. Uh, that's certainly true, um, but in Catalonia, this creates all a very a lot of complexity, which people get very confused about. First of all, Catalan big bourgeoisie is utterly opposed to Catalan independence. That is, yeah. the big banks uh, and and big capital is completely opposed to it. So when the Premier Puigdemont went to a, a meeting of the, you know, this annual meeting of this, you know, economic circle, be like the, you know, Business Council of Australia. Uh, he got the f- most f- frozen reception oh, you could imagine, right. absolutely frozen. You know, so that's the Catalan big capital. Then you've got Catalan, uh, you know, medium and small capital, which is split. You know, there's business umbrellas that are pro-independence. There are business umbrellas that are pro the right to decide. And there are business umbrellas that are just unionist, you know, so that the there's no consistent position of, you know, capital 
uh, certainly uh, the capitalist class, the Catalan capitalist class. It's as split as everybody else is, as much as everybody else is. So, so uh, centri- but now, then you have then you have the actual Catalan right wing conservative nationalism, yeah. which is pro. Some of it's pro independence, um, and it, but it's pro independence on the basis of, look, we could be the Denmark or the Austria mm-hmm. or the Israel mm-hmm. of the Mediterranean. And then we could, wouldn't have to you know, be paying taxes to the Spanish state. And we could forget about all these no-hopers in Andalusia and Extremadura uh, who don't do anything anyway. Well, we're the hard-working people here. You know? So that, there's that, which is some, has got uh, characteristics in, quality, in common with the Lega Nord. In Italy, yeah, uh, but, it'd be, but uh, that's like not, you, but that, like that's you not say, the majority no, no, no. But like uh, you say, if the uh, centralist government just let them have the referendum, they might be surprised at the result. Oh well, exactly because the when you look at all the polls, the polls are fifty-fifty. They ask people directly, and you know, I would, are you for independence or not? And it's 50-50, and it goes up and down, you know, 48, 52, 47, 53. It wanders back and forth. Uh, and the irony in here is, you're, you're just saying, is the irony here is that what makes it wander more towards pro-independent sentiment is the very bastardry coming from Madrid. Is that CCR? حان موعد راديوثون السنوي 2017 راديو 3CR راديو من أجل التغيير في الفترة من 5 يونيو إلى 18 يونيو تدعوكم إذاعة 3CR لمزيد من الدعم الاستمراري بثنا على الهواء من خلال تبرعاتكم الكريمة أي تبرع تدعمون به إذاعة 3CR يصنع فرقا كبيرا وكل التبرعات أكثر من دولارين قابلة للخصم الضريبي لإرسال تبرعاتكم يمكنكم مهاتفتنا على, مهاتفتنا على الرقم 03-9419-8377 أو يمكنكم التبرع مباشرة عبر موقعنا على الإنترنت 3cr.org.au راديو 3CR راديو من أجل التغيير The 3CR annual radiothon is here and in 2017 3CR is radio for change From June 5th to the 18th, we are asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. To donate, call 0394198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radio for Change. Oh, so-
from the Grace Notes Singers Quiet Courage well there's plenty of quiet courage out there I'll have to say now Don's uh, coming to the studio he's travelled all the way from Sydney to be here so you should be listening with uh, a great deal of interest to uh, what he's got to say (laughs) G'day Don, how are you? Hi Annie, how are you? G'day Kim. It's great to be enjoying the Melbourne winter again. (laughs) (laughs) You're being sarcastic. (laughs) No, I love it. It's nice getting a bit of crispy Melbourne air. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually foggy out there too. Yes. Yes, Incredible. Yeah, it's kind of creepy and beautiful this morning. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> if you're up at the time we were up. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. This is the bonus for getting up early on a Saturday morning to do Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, the um, the a National Wages case came up today, this week, didn't it? Yes. Um, and uh, we have a National Wage case which uh, has provided small, a modest increase for uh, workers who are on the minimum wage and workers who are covered by awards and employed under awards and not agreements, um, a 3.3% uh, increase, which translates uh, to $18.29 uh, per hour. Which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which is actually just above, uh, just above inflation. Thank God they've actually decided to do an increase that is, doesn't keep people standing still. Yes, well, that depends on the measure of inflation because work, um, well, right. uh, the experience of price increases for people on lower wages, on middle-range wages and lower, of course, is much different than the average that is produced by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It's much harsher. Um, I think the... Um, what do you mean by that? Well, you mean they fudge the figures with statistics? No, no, no. It's not. It's not fudging. It's just the way in which. So, um, if you look at it sideways, you can see a ghost, and if you look at it straight ahead, you can't. Um, no, I think there's different measures. What I'm saying is, there's di- different measures, and when the Australian Bureau of Statistics goes to work as an organisation, it's doing it on um, the premise of. Uh, uh, a conservative understanding of the economy and the, how the society is constructed. And therefore, it does not necessarily, unless it's in, in some data it does do this actually, it doesn't necessarily pin down the specific impacts of things like pricing, uh, uh, price developments upon uh, working people, particularly working people who are at uh, uh, lower incomes. Yeah, yeah, who are really on the edge. Yeah, so it's in their methodology, which is not its not necessarily a wrong ideology. It's just a different one that doesn't is not sort of charged specifically to look at uh, the specific impacts. So they're, they're somewhere in the middle? Uh, yeah, well, they look at... The, well, no, not necessarily all the time. Sometimes they are when they're looking at medians and you can get median information out of ABS data if you know how to do it. 
uh, but it's it, it, the focus is usually upon averages. Yeah. And, okay. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and in, of course, in the averages... case of prices, it's about a basket of goods. Yes, that's and right. And what's in the goods, baskets of goods? Yeah, yeah. The basket of goods for people on low incomes, especially if they're on rents with extortional uh, landlords, then that's a different story for someone who's not, and so on. So. Well, there you go. And so what about this uh, increase, the increase that we got? Well, the increase, of course, uh, I think Sally McManus in her doorstop interview afterwards nailed it when she said that it does nothing to pull people out of poverty. And even the Commission, in its um, brief summary of its decision, said that was the case, that they knew that this decision was not going to draw people out of poverty, even though... Um, uh, uh, even even though they also acknowledge that uh, one of the objects of the national uh, wage case process is to take account of the needs of the low paid, they then draw a conclusion from that as well. The needs of the low paid are obviously to be drawn out of poverty, but they say then they go on and say in a contradictory way that there are other uh, objectives of the national wage case. Uh, framework that prevent them from being able to... There are statutory objections that prevent them from being able to draw people out of poverty with their decisions. So what are the other priorities of the wage case in their view? Well, it's worth... uh, Perhaps if I can put my finger on it, we can take you to some of the characteristics of the objectives. They're in um, uh, Section uh, 284 of the Act and... Um, I haven't read it shamefully. <laughs> it's not one of those things that you know. Not like it, reading. It, if, you, if you're looking for a, an afternoon nap, then it's a good way to go about getting it, and that is to start reading various sections of the Act. But um, uh, the uh, the purpose of the the purpose of the national minimum wage is to provide a safety net of minimum wages, and then there are se- several uh, objectives. And that includes uh, uh, several objectives which are called statutory objectives that the Fair Work Commission panel is expected to, quote, take into account. And none of them is supposed to have any particular importance over the others, so they're all meant to be taken into account. But they include... um, uh, there's an objective there about taking into account the performance and competitiveness of the national economy. Yeah. Um, That's top of the list, I'm going to say it. Including uh, productivity, business competitiveness, inflation and employment growth. Isn't that outrageous? Well... Um, no, this is it, this is part of this uh, strategy that this this uh, government and maybe others have used to. They started. They did it with uh, uh, bringing industrial relations uh, into the purview of the Productivity Commission. Uh, basically, when I mean, it's like talking about apples and eggs. Well, the role of the Productivity Commission is a bit different, and. Um, no, the, no, but what it, they were doing when they set up that d- decision to look at industrial relations in the context of productivity was to then say that all the uh, human uh, 
elements of society were being suborned by product the business capacity that was was what became more important that's very true and that and that process of making a productivity objective a central part of bargaining has been around actually for decades well of course in all, under the previous the old act that uh, predates the type of act we have now with the Fair Work Act, the old Conciliation and Arbitration Act, from time to time there would be national wage cases and not every time but uh, often issues about productivity would be at stake. Really... uh, But that's really interesting you should say that because uh, we just heard on Stick Together that the uh, Brisbane uh, ETU workers have been locked out there uh, not because their productivity was down, but mainly because the council just wants to say when they work and when they don't, without negotiating. So it's not Working about productivity, with, is yeah. it, really? No, that's not about. That's more about uh, managerial control. That's right. And yes, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so there are a couple of issues going on here, ideologically speaking, aren't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And the Commission, in its decision about um, the national wage case... Um, when it takes account of these six or seven, five or six different ob- objectives, uh, uh, in a sense, makes its own decision about which objective it's going to pay more attention to than others. That's right, and not they only have, that. Yeah, yeah, the legalese, the way the legal mind works. You can see the the way that. I mean, it's like the the government by legislating this way has put in a, a, a what is it a mind teaser for the legal mind because the legal mind is constantly talking about how you dot t i's and cross t's and what's the meaning of this and what's the meaning of that because that's the whole training of the legal profession. It's like they're deliberately tying up the uh, whole process to... So in this case, what do you think were the chief concerns in their mind that they've decided to pay attention to, uh, aside from poverty? Uh, well, what they say is is that they believe... Now, this is, this is the really crucial point. Uh, in a sense, there's two points to answer that question. The first thing is that the National Wage Case Panel is not just uh, the legal minds that... Commissioners, the industrial law minds that commissioners. There are economists who are brought in in a special role as part of the panel. Now, therefore, what, what sort of economics prevails? Mm. Is it uh, classical uh, bosses' economics, if I can put it that way? Uh, is that is that the sort of set of assumptions and logic that is applied to this objective about? Uh, taking into account the performance and competitiveness of national productivity. And in this decision, as in most, it's certainly a boss's way of looking at how economics works that prevails in the thinking of the panel overall. So what they say, to answer, Kim, your question directly, is if, if if they awarded anything higher that might bring some more workers out of poverty then that would put other workers out of work. Yeah, there's always this assumption that... Well, it is. It's this assumption that, and it was sort of inherent in that objective, is that it's actually bosses who create jobs, which is actually erroneous. 
Uh, well, yes, there's all sorts of factors going on in you know how good jobs are created, and it's certainly not just because of what bosses decide. Bosses um, disemploy people as well as employ people as well, and uh, there is a dynamic in the economy even that um, bosses themselves cannot absolutely control. Uh, whereby people get disemployed a lot as well as employed. And, of course, what we have at the moment is an economy where the business model is based on precarious work, as Sally McManus has... She's not the only one, of course, but she is really sort of becoming a very effective uh, uh, and articulate uh, person who's getting that idea out there and getting people to grapple with what it means to have an economy based on people in precarious work. Um because there's the, another perspective as well when it comes to the economy, which is still a bourgeois perspective, but they could actually be more pioneering and go, well, actually, one of the main problems in the economy is that consumer spending is down. So if we actually lifted the minimum wage, then actually that would help certain sections of capital that are struggling, like retail and so on. But that's not the type of bourgeois economics that's prevailing at the moment, it seems. Yes, at- in this case, the uh, the for, the uh, the panel, the national wage panel, has danced around that. They've sort of walked up to that point. That is, and particularly being made by economists like Jim Stanford from the Australia Institute, and um, there's a terrific, um, I think, good Keynesian commentator in the Guardian Online, uh, Greg Jericho, who are making this point that uh, you do need to have stronger. Um, less wage suppression even in order to have stronger uh, demand that creates jobs and so on. Well, it's interesting one because of the... last night uh, one of the uh, commentators from the Australian was trying to make out that the Australian suppression of wages has happened only over one year. Yeah, well, I don't know who that might be, but... Um, that, I would expect well, that sort of thing from an, a commentator in the Australian. Yeah, because that's, that's actually yeah. a bull faced lie. Yeah, that's that's it's. But well, it's he wasn't incorrect. going to say that, but Andy just came out and said. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, national wage cases are annual. Yes. So uh, uh, the, the generally generally speaking, um, when the panel is looking at all the evidence that is put in front of it. It's trying to make – it is, in a sense, statutorily required to make a decision based on the evidence it has for the particular year. Now, uh, uh, the wage suppression is going on. It's brought about by um, uh, the relatively high uh, unemployment and significantly high underemployment. That means people who are in jobs feel more precarious. They feel more vulnerable. And therefore, their propensity to take on a fight to improve their wages and conditions is immediately... The mindset is just... Um, is, is more cautious. And then the second thing, as we've been talking about in our discussions, is that the purpose of the Fair Work Act is to suppress wages. Oh, well, Don, before you go on, we'll come back to this because uh, we now have to go to This Is The Week That Was. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We're talking to Don Sutherland. We'll come back to this after Kevin uh, goes through what happened this week.
A weak solidarity bricky team listener when all these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron lots voted to smash the true blue Aussie economy by electing a loony left government to destroy our vital fossil economy and rely on the unreliable when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow and the US of the UN of the US of the world received this Fin Kill Renewables report which failed to give big supremo Donald Trample the poor the overwhelming mandate he sought to facilitate his withdrawal of the US from the planet altogether on favourable economic terms, which is all that matters, and the SAC director of MI5, whom Donald quite properly calls Kami, gave evidence their big supremo Theresa May now regret had ordered him to rig the Brexit vote so she could overthrow the previous chap. Oh, hang on, hang on. Maybe I mixed a few things up there, but, but I'm sure we get the general picture of where the week's been. And not only is the US of the world's leading protector of the environment, but Donald himself wants the US of to have nothing less than clean air and clean water. So, as Donald's modestly let, let that slip, the mind boggles at what he'd do if it didn't, and he didn't care about the environment. While we breathlessly awaited, breathless thanks to the sort of clean air to which Donald so aspires, awaited this Finkill Renewables report commissioned to delay the inevitable, telling us what we need to do to slow down the end of the world without hurting the fossil economy, because obviously a non-fossil economy is not a real economy. Summed up by that economic bible, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1 headlines, Monday and Tuesday. Business warms to climate plan. And ALP warms to ton of bull energy plan, respectively. The emphasis, the constant, the common denominator, obviously warms. After months and months of chief scientist research, Finn Kills Renewables came up with the solution, a clean energy target. Months and months, Owen, and that's it? It's what my very, very expert learned research found. We could have told him that months ago and saved the country a fortune. To be fair, Al's hands were tied to a, a bit when big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull ruled out any solution under which the big polluters, poor dears, would be asked to pay a little something toward the costs of big pollution. The full title of Al's solution, a clean energy target so as not to hurt unclean energy. But it must be a practical solution, because the Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, says it could lead to a bilateral policy. Poor Malcolm, of course, ruled out any price on fossils with all these caring business class party fossils lined up behind him, hands behind their backs, hiding the knives. Let's get this straight. It's try to save the planet or save my job. Save the planet, save my job. Well, 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 it's a no-brainer. Elsewhere, as maniacs around the world continue to slaughter the innocent in the name of their respective gods and messiahs, we are saturated with blanket telly coverage or page after page after page of the slaughters in white civilised societies. While the daily slaughter of many, many more people in those countries we have invaded warrants a two-par story at the bottom of the world page or no coverage at all. 
We assume we can but imagine after each new terrorist atrocity, they thank their gods for the liberty, freedom and democracy, the liberation we, the coalition of the killing, have brought them. Little or no coverage. Except when a true blue Aussie girl is killed in Afghanistan by a massive bomb that caused massive murder and injury, a little Islamic angel and amid a religion of terrorists, mass coverage. Yet, what were the names of the other 80 or so people murdered? Who were they? What was their life all about? Who will miss them? The wedding parties, the US Arb and True Blue Aussie and the Coalition of the Killing, Kill, Murder, Slaughter, got a feeling there might be page after page, blanket, 24-hour tele-coverage. If a maniac blew up a wedding party here in True Blue Aussie or in the US Arb or in white civilised Europe, details of the angels, the innocent slaughtered, what the couple planned for their honeymoon, their life together, an idyllic future erased by cruel evil, the poor guests also slaughtered, jihad, 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 faces of evil of the killers. But the wedding parties we demolish, not one name, just an item, a bit of collateral damage. No details of their hopes and aspirations. Perhaps just the relief that we prevented terrorists giving birth to other terrorists. Indeed, with daily drone attacks orchestrated from a war room in Washington, no coverage at all. It's no longer news, because slaughter in the name of our God is not slaughter. It's our desire for our love of peace. Not too many laughs there, but there's nothing to laugh about over maniacs who slaughter in the name of their respective messiahs. Wonder what would happen if we stopped invading them. In our desire for our love of peace, this former US Arb Director of National Intelligence, James Lode of Crapper, warned True Blue Aussie via a National Press Club speech Wednesday that China poses a threat to our national security, our sovereignty, and we should beware of foreign governments trying to influence our decisions and independence. Foreign governments interfering in other people's business leaving us to ponder if he thought that one through even slightly, pot calling the kettle and all that. Although it might say something about the national intelligence of large numbers in the US of. After all, two of the past three big supremos they've elected have been George W. Bash the Workers and Donald. So intelligence obviously plays no part in their deliberations at the ballot box. Or worse, they might admire George W. and Donald for their intelligence. Anyway, we got the message. China's a threat, and thank goodness we've got our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of, to protect us from foreign interference in our affairs. While on clear thinkers and logic, the supremo of infrastructure, True Blue Aussie, filled the private coppers Davies, says, says state government should all privatise their public transport systems. A win-win as they get capital to put into new transport services and a more efficient service because of the efficiencies we all know the lean, mean hand of the private sector brings. We know because they never stop telling us. In this case, Phil the private coppers says, through performance incentives, better asset management and slashing jobs. Well, we all know the system is bulging with excess staff, but if there was any doubt about handing public transport to the private sector, he offers the perfect example of how efficiency has so blown public transport out of the inefficient doldrums of the bloated hand of the public sector. Victoria, Melbourne.
We're the exemplar of public transport efficiency. Well, private public. Governments could learn from our experience, he says. And my word, we've certainly learned. And well, there's no doubt it's an incentive for the prospective super-efficient private owners when they see the fortunes transferred from the public purse to the super-efficient. It's brilliant. They rent the system from us and we pay them the rent. And fill the private coffers sensible point that the capital the governments get before handing it all back again and then some could be invested in public transport. But 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 hang on, isn't that the public transport that is no longer public? Ah, clearly fill the private coffers does see a role for the inefficient bloated hand. We meet all the costs, the efficient take home the benefits, and we get the benefits of their efficiency. Told you it was all clear thinking and logic. On taking with the left hand and taking with the right hand, one economist who knows all about these things argued this week it was important to protect the smaller banks in order to maintain the competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice, which works such a treat for all of us. Therefore, these banks, he said, were too small to fail. So with the big ones being too big to fail, the banks successfully have a firm grip on the public purse coming and going. So they too can see there is a role for the public sector, inefficient, bloated with excess workers that it is. We're doing the taxpayers a favour by ensuring the public purse is used efficiently. Uh, Our taxes to the non-taxpayers. Let us remind you, we meet every cent of our legal tax obligations. That hotbed of leftist lunacy of Agitprop, the ABC, lined up a series of commentators on the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country election, who to a person point out what a loony that Jeremy Corbyn is, and to prove just how commie the ABC is, they all told us, told us not that he exceeded all expectations, just maybe because of his policies, but that with a more rational, sensible, non-loony leader, they would have done better. Any wonder the ABC is seen as a commie front. Finally, given today's segment has mentioned clear thinking and logic once or twice, top marks to the Saudis et al. for cutting ties with Qatar because evil Qatar exports terrorism. Thankfully, thanks to Donald, the Saudis have an extra 100 billion plus of train killer merchandise to fight for peace and oppose terror. And we know how much Saudi hates terrorism, 9-11 and all that. That's why George W. and the Coalition of the Killing had to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. Good morning. Over trade or sovereignty, because recognition, it's not something that we haven't just turned up, so we don't need recognition in that sense. We've been here the whole time. Treaty, from my understanding, from my old people, is the end to the war, the end to our suffering, and a chance for two sovereigns to sit down and negotiate a settlement. A settlement also acknowledges what's happened to our people over the last 200 plus years. So we can't be talking about a treaty. It's not a treaty process. It's got to have international scrutiny. We're just asking these criminals to to determine the outcomes of the crimes that they've committed. 3CR, Radio for Change. Yeah. 
Yes, you're on 3CR with Annie and Kim and we've got Don Sutherland in the studio. But I'll just remind you that next week is our Radiothon. So uh, get out your... uh, you're dialing hand and give us a call. I was going to say wallets, but... Yeah, well, you can do wallets as well. But give, give us a call and uh, help us along so that we can be... Uh, we can continue to bring you really interesting information through the f- next year as it hots up for uh, everybody. Hopefully soon we'll get rid of this pariah of a government and get a better outcome for working and uh, the uh, people as well as uh, the majority of people in Australia. But anyway, we left on a cliffhanger. What was it, Kim? Yeah, uh, fair work is a is not fair. I think that was <laughs> right. I think that was the cliffhanger. Uh, so I wanted to ask that you to expand on a piece of information that nobody else out there knew. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you know that old thing of, you know, why do you have to call it fair work because it's not fair. But um I wanted to ask Don about that and also about some of the other objectives of uh, the national wage case? Well, um, I think where we were heading in our discussion was to point out that uh, there are a number of statutory requirements imposed on the National Wage Case Panel and uh, uh, their overall direction when you look at them together is to make it extremely difficult no matter what the intent or the desires might be of the Commission, to break away from a conservative or a boss's economics, uh, economic analysis in its approach to making its decision, no matter what the evidence. And I think that's very true of this decision. One of the other objectives is to take account, uh, is that they have to take account of the relative living standards and needs of the low paid. And as we were saying, we should emphasise this, so, so uh, how would they go about that? Well, they have to. Well, they would receive a whole lot of evidence about the uh, the wage levels and the pressures on the living pay uh, on on the low uh, on the low pay people or on the national minimum wage or close to it. Uh, so they'd receive a lot of information about that, including from all of the major parties. So, in the process. Uh, most of the employer organisations, and then, of course, on the workers' side, the ACTU and uh, some of some of the particular unions that are inside the ACTU make quite detailed submissions in which they lay out the economic arguments. Now, remember that it's the ACTU who basically pros- uh, submit and prosecute the case for a significant increase in the minimum wage. And they are doing that for literally hundreds of thousands of workers who are not in the union. Mm. They're doing it to keep... They're doing it in a sense to uh, reduce the effect of wages competition. Uh, And they're doing it in that sense, not just for people who are on the lower paid, but to actually make a difference, to make it it, uh, more realistic for workers who are on better wages... Uh, to be able to pursue their claims as well. So one of the other, as I said, one of the other objectives is the um, is that they have to take into account the relative living stands and needs of the low paid. And I think to emphasise what we've already said is that the Commission itself says that statutorily 
they are limited in their ability to do that. And that's because of these other objectives that they have to take account mm. of. Now, that is all in the design of the Fair Work Act 2009, coming out of the negotiations associated with the election of the Rudd government when Julia Gillard was the uh, the new Minister for uh, Employment Relations. I can't remember the exact title, I'm sorry. But she coordinated the negotiations between the employers and the unions to produce that set of um, uh, of objectives, if you like, as uh, the same as other sections of the Act to do with the enterprise bargaining objectives, the award variation objectives and so on. So it's designed to, from by structure and by systemic design, to actually limit what workers and low paid can receive. Uh, that's my view, yes. If you So, for example, uh, the way to illustrate that is to point out that uh, since uh, the Abbott government was elected, the major priority on the part of that government to enable employers to increase their rate of exploitation has been the building industry code. Mm. and the strengthening of the powers of the building industry inspectorate under the notorious Nigel Hatchkiss. Yeah, the wicked and horrible... They haven't sought to change the framework for enterprise bargaining, nor have they... This is... is, I'm talking now about the the Liberal National Party governments, and they haven't sought to change the framework for national wage cases and award reviews, and that's because, from their point of view... On behalf of employers, those sections are doing their job. Yes, that's right. And that's the right? horrifying thing, so, isn't it? So when we come to the alternative, which is, I think it's time for us to have you know, a few discussions about what the alternative might be. Sally McManus, in her quite, I think quite, in some ways quite inspiring work, she is stomping the country, going to all parts of the country at the moment, meeting face-to-face with workers. So there she was last week on Palm Island for the anniversary of the big industrial dispute and riots on Palm Island against uh, the racist practices of the police and the Queensland government Mm. up there. And uh, And she was at Myrtleford. She's been at Myrtleford. She's going everywhere, talking face-to-face, establishing her relationship directly with members of unions mainly, and I think in some cases you're going to broader parts of the working class than those who are in unions. Well, that's very exciting stuff. We're going to actually return to the ACTU response and to Sally McManus um, after we have a talk with Steve Jolly about public housing. G'day, Steve. Are you there? Steve, Hello, are you there? Morning. Yeah, good yeah, morning. Yep. Great. I'm glad you, you, you were able to join us. Um, there's been a, a movement at the station here in uh, Melbourne with uh, Martin Foley making a, uh, a clear understanding that what's going to happen to a whole range of inner, inner city public housing. Uh, can you tell us about it? Well, it, you know, it, it's a very, very bad policy move and it's going to be resisted. Um, all the walk-ups are going to go. They're going to get knocked down. The walk-ups in Main Street and Clifton Hill, the walk-ups in Northcote and all over Melbourne, the one, two-storey uh, smaller public housing estates, um, they're going to be demolished. They're going to be rebuilt. 
um, with private housing for rich people and what was public housing will be changed into social housing. In other words, they won't be run, won't be run by the government. It'll be run by some type of potentially religious-based agency or some type of NGO um, with higher rent and less security for the tenants, and the public space will go. Um, the land has been gifted to developers, so um, uh, and the government's argument is that this is the only way that they can finance any expansion of public housing. They seem to have lots of money when it comes to subsidising transurban and other people for you know, told roads, but when it comes to public housing tenants, apparently they've got a self-fund. Was this under the guise of community housing? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, um, it's uh, you know, we've got community housing at 150 Brunswick Street, just down the road, or very close to where you guys are sitting now. Um, it's more expensive than public housing. It, you've got less security of tenure. And when and it was put on the car park, there's now no car park or a very small car park only for that massive public housing estate. So it's partial privatisation. There's no doubt that social housing is better than private housing, but compared to public housing, it's a step backwards. And these kids will lose their gardens. They'll lose their open space where the basketball courts are, where the brass is, where they play, where the Indigenous community in Noon Street have said they're going to lose their possums, obviously, with the, with the loss of the open space. And um, um, I've called a meeting on the Northgate estate uh, in the next week or so. Um, there'll be residents in the, from walk-ups all over Melbourne will be attending to try and stop this. Um, there was some reportage in the in the Age newspaper um, this week, um, and there's, more, there's going to be some public protest uh, coming up very soon. I don't have the details yet. They're going, it's going to get sorted at the meeting later today. Can you explain to people the difference between public housing and social or community housing? Because it's quite insidious, and some of the history behind this change in language. Yes, public housing is run by the government, um, and it's um, you pay roughly about twenty five percent of your rent. Um, most public housing estates have got resident associations um, and you've got certain rights by way of um, security of tenure um, and um, the public housing estates are run um, essentially the most important person is the Minister for Housing which is in this country in this state is, is labour organised um, when it's social housing um, you pay higher rent usually around a third of your income you've got less security of tenure and it's, organized, and it's run by an agency, for example, well, it might be a religious-based agency, it might be something like Yarrity Housing. And it's essentially what it means is that migrants and new refugees, also people who have you know, got some problems in their lives who can access public housing, won't be able to do that anymore. It'll be replaced by social housing. And what they want, they want to ensure that there's a working class close to the city that can clean the toilets, that can clean the offices of the night time, that can you know, staff the essential services for what's increasingly becoming... Um, a city that where the inner city is for the rich and the outer suburbs are for the poor, but they have to have at least a small portion of working class people in the city to you know to keep to lubricate the, the system, and that's what social housing is about. So um, um, that's interesting it's, because it's, it's uh, backward step. The the, uh, the in the article from the Age, the uh, minister's uh, spokesperson is uh, says that they're currently consulting with te- tenants, and uh, it's no, they're, they're announcing to tenants. Yeah, yeah, and and, and but also if I tell you that 3CR building is going to be knocked down on Monday. Well, you know that's better than you not being told and turning up on Monday and there's just a you know a, 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 a demolition crew there. But what I've really done is I told you I've given you a little bit of advance warning. And, and, but but also but the other thing is they've got the affrontery to say that uh, the government could not stand by and condemn another generation of public estate tenants to poverty. Isn't yeah, that it's extraordinary? Manufactured. It's, it's manufactured. 
uh, rundown of these estates. They've sat on the backside. They've done no maintenance. They've done no refurbishment on these walk-ups for years and years. They've waited until they run into the ground, and then they've made this an announcement. It's absolutely outrageous. When it comes to roads, they've been sticking their backside in the air for any big business company, any capitalist, any 1% that comes along and says, we need billions of dollars as a subsidy to build a tolled road for you. Um, when it comes to the coal industry, it's the same. But when it comes to working class people who, by the way, by the way, who for a hundred years have loyally supported the Labour Party in election after election after election, they're treated terribly. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. I don't know how these people in the state government, in the Department of Housing, get out of bed in the morning. Honestly, what they're trying to do, it's the forced relocation of working class people and also a lot, especially in this area, of indigenous people from the inner city out to the outer suburbs. And, um, you know, I mean, the only historical analogy I can think of is what Stalin did to the Continental Tigers. It's unbelievable. And we're going to be fighting it. Um, and if anybody wants to um, know the details, because they're going to get sorted later, they can contact me on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, we'll definitely advertise those details. It sounds like social engineering. I think one thing that really uh, pricked up my ears in Scott Morrison's budget speech was he was talking about encouraging businesses to get into social housing and was talking about providing a stable stream of rent. And I don't know whether I interpreted this wrong, but I thought he was referring to actually being able to take uh, people's rent straight from their Centrelink payments. Is that something that you're concerned about? or Well, they're, they're already doing that to Indigenous people, as you know, in parts of this country. Um They'll do anything except the obvious, which is build more public housing. We've got tens of thousands of people on that waiting list. If they build more public housing, if they brought in inclusionary zoning, which forces every large private development to have a percentage of low-cost housing, if they got rid of the tax breaks that, that, that it mean that in Melbourne we've got three empty properties, three new empty properties for every homeless person on the street, we could, with those three policies, we could immediately revolutionise housing provision in this country, they're not willing to do that because that means taking on the hand that feeds them, which is the um, the 1%. And they'll do anything that's going to keep developers happy. And if that means getting rid of inner city um, um, public housing tenants so that they can hand over this juicy real estate to a developer, so be it. Thanks for talking to us today, Steve. And we will keep our listeners informed about what's going to happen. Yeah. Do you, you have details of how people can get involved? Um. It, we're re-establishing the home campaign, Hands Off Public Estates. Uh, we're meeting later today to work out the time for the rally, and I'm really sorry that I don't have those details now. But if, um, if you want, if they can contact me directly. My phone number is on the City of Yarra website or Facebook or Twitter, uh, Stephen Jolly. You can get me that way, and I'll have the details later today. Fabulous. Thank you. Yes, that was an incredibly important issue. This month marks 10 years of the Northern Territory intervention. Come to the Melbourne fundraiser to roll back the intervention. Stand strong together. Sunday, 18th of June from 4pm at Bar Rousseau, 653 Sydney Road, Brunswick with MC Izzy Brown, Elf Transporter, Senna The Lost Tribe, Lady Lash, Super Juice, La Descarga, Storytelling, Films, Art Auction and Speakers. Find us on Facebook at Intervention Rollback Action Group or at rollbacktheintervention.wordpress.com. IRAG is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we'll we'll finish our conversation with uh, Don Sutherland, who's in the studio, because it's now the uh, ACTU 
is now centre stage, aren't they? Yeah, so what has their response been? Well, I think the union movement's response generally to not just the uh, national wage case decision, but also, of course, the uh, award review penalty rates decision, uh, and also in regard to a number of really uh, bad uh, enterprise bargaining disputes, has been articulated primarily and very well, I think, by uh, the new National Secretary, Sally Manis. Now, um, I think uh, she's not the only person now. There are more and more uh, national officials of unions coming out and reinforcing her point that the laws are broken. This, and, they're mu- and they're not exclusively, but mainly talking about the laws that were created in the negotiations that created the Fair Work Act in the Rudd Labor government. Now, there are, she, she, she's doing... She's now talked about broken laws in three different aspects or three interrelated aspects of workers' wages and conditions. Firstly, she has said that the laws around enterprise bargaining are broken. Secondly, she has said that the laws around the national wage uh, the uh, award review are broken. And thirdly, she has said now this past week that the laws around the national wage case are broken. And she is registering a very powerful message there, a complaint that the three really significant areas of the Fair Work Act that enable workers to have some that, well, in fact, deny workers having significant control over the creation of their standard of living uh, are broken. And there are more national officials coming out and saying that. Uh, now, which is really good to see. So we're now at the stage of the complaint where the problems, the big problems with the Act are being registered and talked about. Oh, that's and there needs to be a lot more of that because it's got to go deeper than the activist level in the union yeah, movement and you can't just be to spread out. Yeah, you can't yeah. just grumble, right? That's right. You've got to move at some point from you just wrecked the studio, Don. Yeah, <laughs> Careful, wrecked, settle yeah. down. I threw a phone the other day across a meeting the other day when I was waxing lyrical. But anyway, um, the the second the second aspect is is moving from complaint. She keeps using this word defiance. She's saying that in order to fix uh, or change these laws back so that they are are more consistent with workers' interests, is there has to be more defiance. Yeah. What we're not hearing about yet uh, and needs to begin to happen soon is um, how that defiance can take expression, how it can be a part of what workers are doing, not just what union officials and union Mm, activists are doing, Uh, and... What what are going to be the demands? What are going to be the changes that we want? Now, she has talked to a certain extent about the rights to strike, and that which is jargon for rights to industrial action. You know, there's all sorts. And, and I've spoken to her. I, I spoke to her, interviewed her, and she was talking about how people need to, at their own workplaces, have to actually get into gear, and they yeah. have to actually talk amongst themselves. And it should be led from the bottom, not from the top. Well, that was what she was saying, well, effectively. Well, I think that's consistent with how I've 
uh, known her way of thinking going back 20-odd years. But uh, And she's right. It does... It does have to reach into this discussion about what's wrong and the need to defy uh, collectively uh, the structure of the Act and associated things does need to reach out into the deeper levels of the union membership and also beyond that to people who have not not yet joined unions but are by no means hostile to unionism. Now, so therefore what ought to be... uh, how, how, How might that alternative strategy, that new that strategy be developed. Well, that's all going to get discussed a lot, I think, at the next ACTU National Organising Conference, which this year is called the Next Gen Conference, and it's on in uh, Sydney at the end of this month. I think not everyone says this in, uh, in the union, but I think these are very important events. They are not decision-making conferences conferences like the ACTU Congress. It's an opportunity for unions to put officials and delegates and maybe just active members into uh, a conference setting uh, from a whole range of unions and expose them to discussions about all the various topics that um, interrelate with each other and which uh, include the sort of things we've been focusing on. Actually, it's a really important networking event. Yes, it's an opportunity for networking. I think, uh, and, and also, of course, what the, um, what the ACTU does with these, on this occasion, they're actually joining together the National Health and, Worker, Health and Safety Conference with the organising conference. And I think that's a good thing because too much in the last 20 or 30 years, I've watched it happen, is that health and safety is, gets separated from being an industrial issue. Mm. When it's first and foremost an industrial issue. Yeah, well, it caused so, one of the so, major industrial battles in the last couple of years at Grocon. Yeah, yes. So that's one of the very one of the very Actually, positive. That's a really features. good point because Grocon was a perfect example of the intersection of legislation, uh, employer uh, power, and a worker power. Yes, yes. It's a great. It was a well. I don't want to get sidetracked from what I think would be good for listeners to learn about this this particular conference. Uh, the information about the conference that hurry anyone up, can hurry act- up. Yeah, is is at the ACTU website at the events tab. So it's www.actu.org.au and you just click the events tab. Now, the... Uh, they're also inviting, as they normally do, international guests to speak, and I think there's going to be a couple of terrific speakers there. There is a woman who is uh, one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter from the USA, in the Los Angeles area in particular, and from what I read, she's been doing some terrific things to develop international solidarity stuff around Black Lives Matter. You've got two but, minutes. Yeah. Well, two big points. Perhaps we can discuss it further uh, we as will. we get closer. In fact, we expect you that, to give us a report because yeah, you're going, aren't uh, you? I don't know yet. It's uh, I'm in a different role these days, so I don't necessarily get to go to these things, but I'll be certainly paying close attention to it. Uh, I yeah, think yeah. there is no... In looking at the program, at this stage I can't see any explicit effort to uh, develop an industrial strategy against the problems that workers have with the Fair Work Act. A parliamentary strategy. It seems to be pointing towards an electoral strategy. Right. Mm. And that's not necessarily wrong. There has to be a change in the law. That's true. Uh, 
But what is the role of an industrial strategy? That is not clear. And so there is a uniquely Australian way of revitalising union strategy, and that is the award, where potentially I think a strategy can be developed based upon awards in the 21st century, not as they were in the 20th century. And that needs a hell of a lot more discussion because its basic principles are right. All right. So, like I said, we've got hardly any time, but we're we're going to hold you to this. We want to have a conversation about what your theories are about why this approach could be a good strategy. Mm, And how that interfaces with an industrial strategy. Yes. Okay. Perhaps we leave with just by saying to all the union activists out there, whether you're just um, active members of your union, pay attention to what the ACTU is pulling together for this conference. I think there's going to be some really good features to it, but there are also potential fault lines that are going to reproduce the problems that we've got at the moment. Thanks very much, Don. In uh, fact, we have to say goodbye. We literally do. So Mm. we should recap who we talked to. We talked to Dick Nicol from Spain, which was uh, in Spain, uh, about uh, the argy-bargy that's going on there. We uh, then uh, got to talk to Don Sutherland, who's come all the way from Sydney to uh, discuss uh, things like the national wage case as well as uh, future strategies in the union. We spoke to... uh, Steve Jolly, who's the, uh, a socialist councillor on Yarra, who's uh, picked up the ball when it comes to the uh, Labor government here in Victoria, deciding that it's going. Its big strategy for uh, homelessness apparently is to sell off uh, public land to developers and do some social housing on the side. And uh, the uh, this is the week that was nice done, nicely done, Kevin. Mm. Yeah. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, every time we have this conversation, I feel like the only answer is we need a revolution. I don't want you at home anymore I want to go to work so I don't have to be poor I want to gig with my band on the Portland shore You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.